Hello, this is episode 265 and in it I am continuing my conversation with architect Emilio Fulscaldo of Nest Architects. We're talking more about green roofs and also about all electric homes. Now, if you haven't listened to episode 264, that was part one of my conversation with Emilio. We discussed in detail the green roof that he did on his own home and Emilio shared a heap of information about the design, the materials, the construction and the detailing of that green roof. So it's worth listening to if you haven't. Just head to undercoverarchitect.com for slash 264 that's the numbers 264 uh, and there's more information there now in this episode number 265 Emilio continues to share some learnings from that very first green roof that he did on his home I had a few more questions for him and we also get to talk about a more recent project that he's completed for clients in Melbourne Victoria These clients, they also included a green roof in their own renovation and extension. The green roof was on the extended part of the home and they also decided to do an all-electric home, focusing on air tightness, various methods of heating and cooling and then specific strategies to save energy overall. It's a really great run-through of a recent project and how effective certain design decisions were in improving their, this this home overall. And Emilio is really generous talking about products and uh, specific methods of heating and those kinds of things. Now, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, number 265, I've got information on the resources uh, and also some images that you can check out. You can grab all of that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 265. That's the numbers 265. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building, and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands, and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about leveling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website, and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take, and the best way to create a home that works, feels great, and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. 
Before we kick off part two of my conversation with Emilio, let me just take a minute to remind you about him and Nest Architects. So Nest Architects was founded in 2006 by Emilio. It's an award-winning practice that reflects his personal beliefs in collaboration, environmental sustainability and inclusive design. Emilio is a registered architect and as well as being the director of Nest, he teaches regularly at the University of Melbourne. Emilio is passionate about the power of collaboration and he is a strong advocate for environmental sustainability and inclusive design in all projects. And to Emilio, being an architect is an opportunity to change behaviour and communities for the better. Now, we kick off this episode with me actually asking Emilio about whether any of the neighbours of his own home took issue with or complained about the green roof and the fact that he and his partner could get up there. I was really curious if the neighbours had any concerns about privacy or overlooking and if that was a problem. And then we go into chat about a recent project that Emilio has finished. And in our conversation, you'll hear Emilio talking about the air tightness that was achieved for this particular home. He actually discusses it as a percentage. So make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode. I'm going to share some more information about that from some follow-up conversations that I had with Emilio about how that translates to the air changes per hour. Now remember I've got a full uh, PDF uh, download transcript of this episode. I've got uh, resources and all of those kinds of things and images that Emilio has shared with me. You can find all of that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 265. And did you have any neighbours complaining about privacy or overlooking or anything like that once the roof was in use or your kids, you mentioned that you moved out when your kids were sort of younger. So your kids wanting to actually get up there and, and, um, and come and join mum and dad on the roof. Yeah. Well, we never, (laughs) so our kids never went up there. We never, we never felt confident enough with them up there. Um, Especially at those young ages, just don't know what they're going to do. So we never took them up there. Our neighbours, they were fine. I mean, um, it's not like we were up there very long and they were all intrigued by it. So we had questions about it as well. Um, you know, we lived in a nice little, nice little cul-de-sac. We all knew each other. So it wasn't too much of an issue. I can imagine though that in some areas um, it would be an issue. So I, I'm not sure how you would um, navigate around that if you have an adversarial relationship with people who live around you. That's obviously a different a different kettle of fish definitely so that's something to consider um, if you're going to embark on this project for sure I really encourage listeners to check out the photographs that we'll share in the resources because the the level of uh, natural beauty it added to such a small footprint of a site and such a, a compact home it's it just elevated how that whole home looked and obviously felt and functioned with this what you know, for you to pursue something like this at the time, I can imagine felt was, you know, quite unconventional, yet also seemed strange that it was unconventional. And so, you know, to be able to navigate that and, and yeah, when you look at the photographs, you're just like, why, yeah, why aren't we doing this more? Because you can see you've got this, you know, whole sort of area of real estate on the top of your house that, as you said, improved the energy performance of the house overall. You know, you've mentioned on your website that it brought extra fauna, you know, bird life, those kinds of things. I can imagine popping up to the roof to get salad for the evening <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And um, and just just getting to live your life on not just the footprint outside your doors, but it adding a whole other dimension to your lifestyle in that site and in that home as well. I mean, do you have you how have you navigated it with um you know thinking about it for other projects and those kinds of things 
Yeah, sure. We recently completed a project in Richmond, which is in the inner city of Melbourne, very similar design and very similar um, shape as well. The overall house was bigger, but the green roof section just occurs over the extension, not over the entire house. And for that client, we approached it in a very similar way. We said we decided that it wasn't going to be an outdoor space, so there wasn't that need for balustrading and staircases and whatnot. And the priority was to focus on its on its sustainability credentials and what it can do for the house in terms of performance. And that's been a really successful project. This time we used a company to install the green roof as opposed to, in our case, it was myself, the builder and the landscaper who were doing it. So we <laughs> Didn't kind feel of, like renting your services out for this, Amelia? No, no. <laughs> Once is enough. So we, we gave that responsibility to a company and they undertook everything from the waterproofing up. And because of that, the sandwich is warranted and they provide, they can provide a maintenance regime as well. So for that client, the green roof has a lot more rigor to it. They have some safety with regards to warranty and guarantees. And if they want to subcontract the maintenance to them, they can. Um, and that's how we that's how we would undertake green roofs for anyone else because it just offers that level of security that you know, ninety nine percent of clients want. Not everyone you know is building their own home and wants to do it ad hoc. They want a bit of security under there to come along with their project. Yeah, I love it. I thank you. I thank you so much for taking through that in so much detail because. As I said, there's lots of undercover architect community members that have uh, been really curious about this and we have seen it in a lot of European applications, that sort of narrow profile roof. But I know that any time I've opened the conversation with consultants, it's like this 600 garden bed and it's this really hefty kind of undertaking. And so to see that it can be done in a, a shallower profile in domestic construction using, you know, timber framing and those kinds of things is fantastic. Now, sustainability is obviously a big part of the way that you do work. You talk about, you know, you wanted to create this home in alignment with your own values way back in 2011. And you can see in your work that this has continued to be a, an important core philosophy in your projects and how you approach your work generally. And before we we were organising this interview, you shared with me another project that you've um, recently finished, which is an all-electric home. And I've been talking about the under, with the undercover architect community about how to start thinking about, you know, the importance of all-electric homes, phasing out gas, looking at what opportunities there are to change the way that we think about energy use in the home and where we source our energy from. And um, this home, there were some really exciting things about it that you've been able to create some, uh, get some anecdotal information from in terms of its performance. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time diving into the detail of that, if we can. The This home had, it was all electric, use of the green roof, uh, reverse brick veneer. You tested the air tightness of the home. Uh, you used Nobo heating panels, which I've not personally used, so I'm really excited to learn more about those. And ceiling fans used all year round. So I'm wondering if we can just dive into you talking a little bit about the clients and how you sort of embarked on this project and I suppose your goals and the way that you structured kind of figuring out this solution for them and what you've been able to find in terms of the, the performance of the home overall. Yeah, sure. 
Yes, it's a really exciting project because we were approached by the client and they wanted to do something small, nimble and really sustainable and they wanted a green roof. And I said to them quite early on in the design process, if we're doing a green roof, we're committing because I've had so, so many projects where the green roof gets kiboshed halfway through because it's too expensive or too arduous. So if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Otherwise, we're not doing it and let's just make that decision now. And they committed and they went all the way with it um, and they should be commended on, on following that through. That's actually a really good piece of advice for anyone thinking about this because I can imagine it completely changes the aesthetic of the home for you to approach it with a green roof in mind compared to, as you say, kiboshing it in the middle and then trying to figure out how do you create that roof you know, without, without the green roof and when the whole sort of design has been, you know, harnessed around having this greenness on the roof. So yeah, that's a really good lesson for everybody listening. If you're going to do green roof, stay with doing green roof. Otherwise it's part of maybe one way to think about that is to think of of the green roof, not as an additional element, but as an integrated element that if you get rid of it, then something essential is lost. You're not just taking off solar panels or putting them on. It's not analogous to that. So if you formulate those questions and discussions in terms of uh, integration and being part of the home, then it's very difficult to pull that element out. And yes, there's a, there's a cost involved and not everyone has the money to undertake it. So those sorts of discussions at, at the outset about how much is it going to cost uh, are really important to have so that you can weigh up the benefits versus the costs, definitely. Um, yeah, so getting... I interrupted you talking about the client, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we embarked on the project, we set the goalposts and that's that we were aiming for um, to kick a goal and, and, play, and, play, uh, um, and play a very sustainable game. With, with that in mind, we chose to look at all the elements, floor, walls and roof, and try to get the most out of them. The floors are timber floors, and then we added a new timber floor so that's highly insulated. The walls, we used reverse brick veneer. In Melbourne, which is very different to up north, we know thermal mass is really, really important, and it heats up and then passes that heat on you know, during the evening. So it's really important to incorporate thermal mass into a house, but you have to protect that thermal mass as well, okay? So you don't want to get, to get too hot in summer because then it's passing on the heat in summer. So reverse brick veneer locates the bricks on the inside and has the timber framing on the outside. So the heat is that's produced in the house is kept in the house. The bricks absorb the heat, pass it on, and in summer the bricks are protected from the harsh sunlight um, and they don't warm up, warm up as much. Plus, that if you like that aesthetic, then have it on the inside because that's where you're spending 90% of your time. So, you know, we in that house, uh, in the Richmond house we're talking about, we painted the bricks. In my own home in, in Coburg, which we were talking about, they were double brick walls, but we left the bricks red. Um, so you can do lots and lots of things with them and they're, they're, they can be really beautiful. And then with the roof, we thought, well, if we're going to all this effort with walls, um, double glazing windows um, and the floor, then there's an opportunity to really push the green roof and, and create something that is that performs really, really well. And so all those things came, in, came into effect to create what we call the fabric of the building, the skin of the building. It was really tight uh, and really, really uh, performed and really thick and performed really, really well. In addition to those 
design decisions. The client also discussed doing a blower test on the house. So essentially a consultant comes through, they pump the house full of air and then they try and see where it leaks. To achieve good air tightness, it's quite, it's not easy, but it's not incredibly difficult either. We chose to go about 85% of the way to making a really airtight house, being 100% airtight. We, we knew that our client's behaviour would compromise the 100% tight house. Does that make sense? They no, were, what they, do you mean by that? So if you create a house that's 100% airtight, then you, you want to maintain that airtightness. And our clients were the type of people who live with their windows open all the time. They never close the windows. Okay, for instance, and they never close the front door. They've got a security on, um, door on the front door and they leave the front door open. They love that cross ventilation. They do it all the time, even during winter, they leave the windows open. So we thought, well, there's no point investing in 100% head tightness because you're just going to open a window. So we went to the kind of an 85% um, um, level, which meant. Yeah, when you say 85%, do you know what that measured in sort of air changes per hour? Probably not. That's probably. Um, a bit above my pay grade at the moment. But anecdotally, what it means is that um, the ways we we got to that point were that all the timber was siliconed to the ground, uh, to the floor and the ceiling. The foil that wraps a building was folded in such a way that it didn't leave any gaps. Powerpoints and lights, which create a hole, were then manipulated such that or, or, or fixtures were used where the hole was then sealed. So we went to that kind of extent to create air tightness, but we didn't go the whole way with it. And what that meant was that we can, the clients then can control, quite easily can control how hot and cold the house is because they're not getting influences from it, too many influences from outside. By doing that, we knew that we didn't have to have we, we knew that we could just use electric panels and the Novo panel is quite good and they link to a central hub, which you can, which is linked to an app like everything in these days. Um, and you can control different rooms, different temperatures, different thermostat at different times as well. So each room is kind of individually controlled. And then one interesting aspect to the house and the behaviour of the clients was that they left their fans on reverse the whole time, all through winter. So whatever heat was being produced, they'll just keep pushing it down. That's the first time I've kind of encountered this in Victoria. I mean, I know when you go up north, you know, fans are on all the time. You have to. It's so humid. You need that breeze. Uh, but down here, you kind of have your fans on for a couple of months that you turn them off. The, the modern fans these days come with a great little remote control, so it's really easy to switch them back and forward. It's not you don't have to get on a ladder anymore to do that. So... We got, a, we got a pretty airtight house with great with a great perimeter and, um, and really high performing fabric around it, which controlled the which controlled the internal air, and then the clients were able to heat it and cool it, and that heating and cool that hot and cold air wouldn't escape too quickly out of the building, and so all those things combined to create a really really um, high performing house. They use minimal 
electricity to heat and cool their house. And with the addition of, they've got six and a half kilowatts of um, solar. And so in summer, they're producing about eight times as much electricity as they need. So they're getting a, they're getting a credit, even though in Victoria, you're selling at five cents a kilowatt, so it's very low, they're still getting credit. And in winter, half of their electricity use is being offset. This is a small home, young family. I think that a larger home with a more typical family, say two or three kids of older ages, their electricity might be about 40% more than what my project was using. But even by adding 40% onto usage, um, you're still getting a credit in summer and you're still paying about two thirds of what you would be paying in winter on electricity. So I feel, I feel like we're at that point now where the conversion to fully electric homes is, is just, we're just about there. Heating in Victoria is the most difficult thing to try and navigate around. That's the hardest thing. And so you said you've got the Novo electric panels to the bedrooms and you used infrared panel heaters to the bathrooms, uh, reverse cycle air conditioning to the kitchen and living area. So with that combination, you know, and you, you mentioned when you let me know about this project that they, you said the clients admit that they were very liberal with their use of air conditioning to cool and heat the living and dining areas and the amount of hot water that they use, they used, they've got an electric heat pump and the amount of time that they left the bedroom panels on for, meaning that they were not turning anything off or on to save money. In fact, they probably went a bit overboard, especially with the heating and they used their ceiling fans in both winter and summer and they were surprised at how effective they were. So I think this is the thing a lot of people anticipate that to live like this is going to mean a massive amount of sacrifice walking around in three layers of woolly jumpers every winter. Um, but I think, you know, that that analysis of keeping the footprint small or, as you said, even if the footprint was larger, you still anticipate that people would have uh, a would be feeding back into the grid in summer and have a, a reduced energy use in winter. It is really interesting to see how close this and, and accessible this is for people. Those Nobo panels that were in the bedrooms, can you just let me know a little bit more? Are they just a plug into the wall or they're wired to, you, you mentioned they're run by an app, so they're wired to a central hub that mm. then can be run on a thermostat. So can they all be independently controlled of each other as well in terms of how that works? So they, they all just plug into the wall. Um, so you can retrofit them fairly easily if there's a, there's a, a PowerPoint close by. Um, they're very thin and they're not too big. So they don't, I mean, they're not going to clash too much with furniture and you can have furniture kind of up to them as well. So they don't wreck a room too much. They have a transmitter on them, which transmits, I think, by Bluetooth to a central hub and then your phone links to that hub. The thermostats are set, I believe the thermostats are the same for each room, but because each room is slightly different, so you can close bedrooms off and you might leave living rooms open, they'll come on and off at different times because obviously um, bedrooms going to heat up slower or, or cool down faster. Now, when you compare this to hydronic heating, gas hydronic, or even electric hydronic, it's very difficult to manipulate each room and control each room because the panels don't have, they only have an analog tap to turn them on or off. And it's guesswork to 
to try and close it off by half. So the electric panels give you that kind of flexibility to be able to control the rooms. We used infrared in the bathrooms because they heat up quicker. The Nobos are a slow release heat, the infrareds are a quicker heat, which means that you can put them on a timer as, and the timer can come on say half an hour before you anticipate using the, the bathroom. Whereas in the bedroom, you might want that heater coming on say an hour before you use the bedroom. And that's a, a different app. So <laughs> I can imagine my clients are comp unbelievably confused with how many things they have to do on their phone. But, you know, that you know, didn't, didn't take long for them to get into the rhythm of it, for sure. And did you worry about any mechanical recovery ventilation or anything like that in the home or because the homeowners, as you said, they live with their windows open most of the time, that was not something that you thought you needed to sort of test or worry about? Yeah, we had these discussions a lot and our client actually bought one and has it, and has it in the house in reserve just in case. So we didn't know how well it would perform or how it would perform. Um, we had some ideas, um, but the client saw one, bought it and thought, look, I'll just have it just in case we need to install it and hasn't seen a need to install it. And as I suggested, because they live a lifestyle where windows are always kind of partially open, they're getting the ventilation required. They have mentioned that in one of the bedrooms, if they don't open the window, you know, the air gets really, really stale and and a heat recovery unit it could be a really good thing to have in those instances if they're going to close the house up. So that's something that people should really think, think about and be quite rigorous in their research about that. And moving forward, perhaps in my next projects that I'm doing, if we're going to this level of air tightness, then perhaps it's worthwhile just putting one in anyway. And it's installed, you've got the ductwork installed, you've got everything for ready for it to use um to turn on when you need to so so it's an interesting um uh, it's an interesting question that we're that we're working through at the moment yeah well i think with the proposed changes to the national construction code that we're obviously still waiting to hear around condensation and those kinds of things it's mooted that if if the house is measuring at under five air changes per hour a mechanical recovery ventilation unit will be required um uh, in order for it to pass so I think that it's really interesting to sort of think about this from that point of view of this, if you are somebody that lives with your windows open all the time, that's one thing. But if you do go on holidays and you lock the whole house up, you know, how are you going to purge that air that's been sitting in the home? And do you want that actually happening for you on a regular basis whilst you go away so that you're not coming back to a house that's musty and mouldy and um, those kinds of things. So, um, the, and just for your, just sorry to cut you off, yeah. but um, just for your listeners, these questions are pointing toward kind of passive house design, which I'm sure you've spoken about uh, in the past. And passive house certified designers can probably jump all over these questions and answer them and talk about behavioural um, clients' behaviours versus uh, air tightness. I'm not a certified passive house designer, so um, I'm coming at this slightly from the outside in a, and in a little bit of an ad hoc fashion, but there's still... Uh, there's still great strides you can make without having to go to that passive house level, which is great, by the way. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't. Um, it's just... <laughs> I love this. I mean, this is a thing. A lot of the community are 
they they would love the idea of passive house largely because of the as built verification process you know that that's one of the fantastic things about passive house that you get to see the modeling actually have to be demonstrated that it's being executed during construction but for large in part most people are building with conventional construction methodology and you still want to achieve higher performance outcomes where you possibly can for the investment that you're making so so one question I wanted to ask you was the reverse brick veneer. Was it hard to find somebody who was willing to build that? Because I know lots of my community would love that in their homes, but trying to get a builder to build that way is is challenging for them because even though it's just the other way around, you know, to what most people are doing with brick veneer homes, it's something that a lot of people, you know, a lot of builders will balk at. Did you have any issues with that in that regard? No, not really. Personally, I work with uh, just two or three builders. I've been working with them for a long time. So they're always up for the challenge. They've been around for a long time and they've seen they've seen these construction methods and even used them in the past themselves. So um, they were familiar with them. I, with regards to detailing and making sure that we were getting the right finish and, and understanding how it works structurally, that's just a little bit, little bit of investigation on the architect's part just to uh, line up the ducks. So that wasn't too hard. No, sometimes it's more about, it's not so much a discussion with the builder, it might be a discussion with their subcontractors and suggesting to them that, hey, yes, you're doing a brick wall, but it's on the inside. So let's think about the types of bricks we're using and the finish we want to achieve so that it looks great. It's not just a brick wall on the outside. It, uh, it, might, it might want to look slightly different or have a different finish to it. So you just want to work through that with the contractors. So, you know, I've never confronted any issues. It's just kind of, yeah, maybe getting those subcontractors over the line and having those discussions on site. That's kind of the important thing to do instead of just having them barrel along and then they're two thirds finished and you think, oh, bloody hell. Would have been mm-hmm. nice if <laughs> would have been it's nice if cleaner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to yeah. touch on something that you mentioned before about passive house. So you told you you're so right on that point that with passive house you can do the sums and you can understand how the house is going to perform. If if you're doing a ad hoc passive house, maybe we call it like that. Call it that. It's it's very difficult to understand how the house is going to perform because you can't do any math on it. The star ratings we're getting from the energy um, consultants aren't sophisticated enough to bring in elements of behaviour or these these kind of different ways of building in terms of air tightness, green roofs, and things like that. So it might be something for clients it it might be an idea for clients to think about getting an additional consultant involved and yes there's more fees and there's more coordination involved but if the architect knows someone who can provide that level of um, assistance in quantifying performance I think that would be something that could really help clients understand the benefits of what they're doing as opposed to simply being aspirational or just trusting their architects, which I commend all of your readers, uh, your listeners to do at the same time, you know, getting some stats behind it can help as well. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. And one of the other things we were just talking with my uh, builder members in my other business, Live Life Build, about sustainable construction and in particular passive house. And we were talking about woofy analysis where you can ascertain where the dew point in a wall build up is. 
And one of the builders said, look, anytime you're building with a new composite of wall materials in a climate that you're not used to building in, or you're, it's the first time that you've used that wall composite in your climate, you'd be crazy not to get a woofy analysis done of it to know that where the dew point is, is going to be able to be adequately ventilated and drain out of the wall and not cause problems with um, moisture in the frame and those kinds of things. So this is the thing, we've got the opportunity to access a lot of data these days as we go about making these material choices and understanding how climate impacts our home. And even though the climate data that we're working with isn't necessarily predictive, it's not it's not obviously taking into account what might happen to temperatures in the future. It, it, it is um, very much based on a lot of uh, fantastic historical data. And I think then getting your team, you know, a lot of people struggle with design decisions and making choices because they feel they're batting at shadows. But a lot of this data enables you to make some really informed decisions about these um, these products and materials and composites and things like that. So, and I love that you've you've lived in these houses. I mean, you've lived in your own house like this. You've been able to assess the fact that you were able to feel like it, what it was without soil on it for a period of time and then um and then had the sort the experience of living in so with its with soil on it and see that improvement in the performance of the home can i just ask with that house you mentioned it has got solar on the roof so is the there was obviously enough room on the on, on part of the roof because the, the green roof didn't go for all of it is that how that worked yeah so that richmond project we um think of it as you know a traditional cottage which had the traditional pitched roof and then the extension had a a, a slightly flat roof a skillion roof so it was over the skillion roof that we were able to put the green roof and then the panels were able to reside on the kind of hips of the existing roof so we had the best of both worlds in that one that's fantastic Emilio I can't thank you enough you shared your learnings and your knowledge about all of this with such generosity with the undercover architect community and I um, I'm going to put all the links to your website and these projects and things like that uh, in the resources for this podcast episode. I do really encourage listeners to go and check out the photographs on Nest Architects website. A lot of really amazing examples of, um, of particularly of looking at the Coburg project and uh, looking at that green roof. And I, I know that listeners are going to have loved this level of detail about how you put that together um, because we're all about the detail and undercover architects. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. I'm really, really grateful. No, thanks for having me. It was great chatting to you. I so hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Emilio and learning more about green roofs plus his recent project. You know, there really was a lot of detail in there about things like reverse brick veneer, some product suggestions, heating and cooling in all electric homes. It was just fantastic. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, I actually touched base with Emilio after our conversation because I wanted to ask more information about those blower door test results um, that he had done on the recent project. So the 85% that he was discussing, that was a metric that he and the builder had used to discuss the air tightness. Uh, the blower door consultant had actually had actually provided a range of recommendations in a document to them uh, that were designed to help them achieve air tightness in the project and Emilio and the builder had reviewed what of those they could believe that they could adopt as part of the construction process. Now in air changes per hour figures though I asked Emilio if he could find out what the actual air changes per hour results were from the blower door test and he kindly uh, found out for me. So the blower door test results were 5.7 
air changes per hour. Now that is a great result for a traditionally constructed home uh, and it's such a fantastic result given that a lot of the research into existing homes and even newer homes, the air changes per hour anywhere between 15 air changes per hour and 39 air changes per hour. Now NatHERS, your energy efficiency assessment modelling, it assumes 10 air changes per hour to determine the energy efficiency star rating of your home. You'll have heard me chat about in this episode if you're if in the new changes coming to the National Construction Code, if you achieve under five air changes per hour, you'll need to include some mechanical recovery ventilation. So, you know, understanding this, it's going to become part of the conversation to have with your designers and builders uh, and to be talking about as part of your project because air tightness is a big area of focus. But if you don't get it right, if you if you don't couple it with an understanding of of construction methodology and moisture management and those kinds of things, you can create a lot of headaches for yourself in your finished home. So just know, you know, that you can start having more conversations about this with your team is super helpful. Now, Emilio also shared with me the, the, the company that they actually used for the installation of the green roof on this latest project. Uh, it was a company that's called Phyto Green. So that's F-Y-T-O the word green Um, they came in once the ply and the waterproofing had been done on the roof and Fido Green actually specialise in green roofs and walls. You can see on their website they've got loads of information about this work that they specialise in. Now, as well as the installation of the green roof elements themselves and everything was that was involved in establishing the garden on the roof, they also included consultation time up front to assist with the design process and with plant selection to be able to work with the client on that. And then they also included a three-month a three-month maintenance period after the green roof was uh, completed. So definitely check out their website if it's something that you're interested in. Now, also for those of you who are interested, I uh, couldn't help but ask Emilio uh, what type of windows they had used on this recent project. He let me know that they were Vic Ash frames that were double glazed with low E-coated glazing. And he added that they would have actually liked to have uh, specified high performance windows like BINK, B-I-N-Q, but they didn't have sufficient budget for that with this project. Now, a big, big, big thank you to Emilio who has so generously shared so much great information about green roofs and other insights uh, in his projects. He was generous on the in our conversation. He's been generous in following up and providing us with lots of information, as well as the photographs that we've included Uh, on the resources for this episode so if you've enjoyed this episode please reach out to Emilio at Nest Architects and let him know now we've got a free downloadable pdf transcript of this episode uh, links to the information I've mentioned also photographs of the projects uh, and that green roof under construction you can find all of those at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 265 that's for this episode and episode 264 um, for part one of the conversation As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.